0: Welcome to Role-Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role-playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 80, Amber Diceless Role-Playing Game. This week, we're going to get into something a bit different for us, which is a diceless system, specifically the Amber Diceless Role-Playing Game. However, our format this week is going to be way different than usual, and that's because the game itself is based on the novel series written by Roger Zelazny. So instead of first getting into the game itself, we're going to start the tour by covering The Chronicles of Amber, which is the series in question. That allows us to get at least a brief understanding of the background of the game before we get into the nuts and bolts of it. So with that said, let's crank up the tour bus and get to it. The Chronicles of Amber are a ten novel series written by Roger Zelazny between 1970 and 1991. They are still available in print in bookstores around the world, though I should note that they are frequently only available in omnibus versions, so if you go looking for them, just look for them in that style. In numerous interviews over the years, Zelazny has stated that Henry Kuttner's 1946 novel The Dark World was a huge influence on him when he was writing up the Chronicles. Specifically, Zelazny utilized several literary similarities in his own books. Both works use similar, if not the same, names. Both works utilize the literary device of moving a present-day character from the real world into a fantasy alternate reality world, and a number of other similarities between the works. Zelazny also gave credit to Philip Jose Farmer's World of Tears series of novels, especially for the powerful family rivalry. Think uh, Game of Thrones, only a whole lot worse. Obviously, Zelazny also utilized his own love for the medieval European time period, so he was influenced by a number of works in that particular genre. Some observers and literary critics have also pointed out over the years that the chronicles also appear to be influenced by Shakespeare, and they've listed a number of different examples throughout the series to prove their point. Now, as a counterpoint, if you read enough fiction, you'll note that pretty much everybody seems to have been influenced by Shakespeare in some way, shape, or form, so that's not really as big a revelation as you might think it is. Not to insult anybody's work, mind you. Now, we could take hours breaking down the number of influences Zelazny either consciously or unconsciously used when writing the Chronicles, but I'd rather get into the background of the series so the world of the role-playing game can be better understood. Now I alluded to it a moment or two ago, but the series is based on the concept of parallel worlds, with domination over them being fought for between the kingdoms at the extreme ends of what's called Shadow, Amber, also known as the One True World of Order, and the Court of Chaos. An interesting aspect of this is that those Amberites, which is what the citizenry are known as, who are of royal blood, meaning they've descended from Oberon, have the ability to walk in shadow, which means they can mentally will changes in the world around them. Now there's a whole lot more to this, but that basic note on ability makes this series different from a great number of the fantasy-based novels of the time, many of which were still setting themselves in faraway worlds or periods of time that were a long time ago. Now the geography of Amber is an interesting read for sure. The Castle of Amber, which is located with the City of Amber, sits on Colvir, which is a mountain that basically dominates the land and the sea around it. Technically the castle sits high above the city, visible to everyone in the city below. The mountain slopes down into the city and then slopes down into the seaport. While there are paths and roads going through the city, as well as up to the castle, there is a cliff on the eastern side of the mountain, which is thousands of feet high. It's climbable though, by utilizing a set of stone steps that work through switchbacks on the mountain itself. That's not easy. You can only walk it single file as you work up the mountain, but it can be done. Southeast of Amber and out to the sea is the city of Rebma, as well as the Isle of Cabra, which has been noted in more than one fan review for its lighthouse. It's also well-known for that lighthouse in the series itself. There are a number of estates and other villages to the north of Amber, but again, this show is primarily about the role-playing game, so in the interest of time and space, we'll move on to the next subject of the novels that I wanted to cover. The Chronicles primarily focus on the dysfunctional family that finds itself in the center of a cosmic war between a number of powers. Nine princes and four princesses of Amber are tied into dealing with the disappearance of Oberon, who by the way is their father, and trying to figure out the succession of the throne. As one would expect, nobody trusts anybody, and they're all ready to stab each other in the back at a moment's notice. And it should be noted, they're ready to do that both figuratively and literally. So as you might think, they're all running with the same theory. It's all about me, baby. Taking all of that into account, I'll again allude to Game of Thrones, which a great majority of you have either read the books for, or the series based upon. This family bears a great resemblance to the Lannisters, or to be more accurate, the Lannisters bear a great resemblance to this family. There's one more point about the ruling family that I want to hit on in this section, and that's the fact that all of the princes and princesses have superhuman strength and regenerative abilities. So to that end, it makes them among the most powerful beings on Amber, if not the most powerful beings. And they're trying to stab each other in the back. Makes family dinner an interesting concept, if you ask me. Alright, so we've done a brief outline on the novels that are the basis of the role-playing game. With that done, let's dig into the Amber Diceless role-playing game. As we do when deep diving a role-playing game, let's start with the history of the creation of the game itself. Eric Wuchik, whom we've discussed before in the history of this show, offered to design a game based on the Amber books for West End Games, and they agreed to take a look at whatever product he created. Wuchik's goal was to integrate the Amber setting into a role-playing game that would work in a coherent manner. Wuchik took his task seriously, playtesting his system for several months at the Michigan Gaming Center. During the playtests, he decided his game would be a diceless game. When he presented it to West End, they weren't interested. And as you might guess, it's because the game was intended to be diceless. Needless to say, the concept of diceless games wasn't a very popular one in the late 80s. And with all of West End Games' RPG products needing dice, they couldn't see the game selling well without them. Wuchik wasn't deterred though. He acquired the role-playing game rights to Amber himself, then took the game to Artalsorian Games. Initially, it seemed as if the partnership would work, but something didn't sit right with Wuchik, and he withdrew from the association over what he's called, quote, creative differences, end quote, over the years. Now, Wuchik still wasn't giving up. Out of options from established publishers, he decided to form his own company. He called it Phage Press and used it to publish Amber Diceless Roleplaying Game in 1991. The original book came in at a hefty, for the time, 256-page book, which focused on materials from the first five novels in the series, which are known as the Corwin Cycle. However, he also sprinkled in some details, specifically the concepts of sorcery and the Logris, from the other five novels, which are also known as the Merlin Cycle. His reasoning for doing this was to allow players to play characters from both sides of the amber coin. Now, he made a few adjustments from the book that would allow players to have more choice in character creation, but otherwise stayed as true as he could to the original source materials. Something to understand here is that it was just assumed that those choosing to play Amber Diceless would have already read at least some of the novels, so Wuchik didn't get into minute details in the game book. It was assumed you'd build your character based on one of the major characters from the series, since they're seen as the heroes and villains of the work. This has been criticized by many over the years, as those who didn't or haven't read the novels feel like they were missing something when they went to play the game. However, having taken a cursory look at the rules, my opinion is that knowledge of the series isn't an absolute necessity. While you will lose a little something in the translation from the novels to the game, you can still play it, enjoy it, and have a good time with it. Of course, as I said, that's my opinion, and I could be wrong. With the release of the main rules finished, a 256-page companion book was released in 1993. Titled Shadow Knight, Wuchik put in the remaining details from the Merlin series he'd left out of the original book, which provided players with a number of new options for creating their characters, and GMs with a number of new options for running their games and their NPCs. One change from the novels themselves is that Wuchik didn't treat the Merlin series as a continuation of the series. Instead, he presented it as a role-playing game example, using the characters from the book Merlin, Luke, Julia, Jurt, and Coral as the PCs in his example. Some of the book contains essays on the game itself, stats for new characters, and some updates from characters from the first book, and plot summaries from all ten books in the series. That final inclusion was specifically for the GMs who hadn't read the source material to assist them in running the game. I'd also argue those summaries would work for players who hadn't read the books, either. Both of the games were translated into French and published by Jeux Descartes in 1994 and 1995, respectively. Phage Press had announced a third book in the series, titled Rebma. They'd commissioned cover art, as well as taken pre-orders. However, the book never saw the light of day. Wuchik had also discussed an interest in creating a book providing more details about the Court of Chaos. Again, that book never saw the light of day, and the sun soon set on the phage press period of Amber Diceless. The publishing rights to Amber Diceless were acquired by Guardians of the Order in 2004. They took over sales of the books and announced they'd be releasing a new version of the game, which of course tends to be the modus operandi when a company acquires an existing product. But, Guardians of the Order never delivered on that announcement, and they went out of business in 2006. With the end of Guardians of the Order, the original books in the Amber Diceless line went out of print. That being said, they are available in PDF form from multiple sites, and we'd suggest you start at DriveThruRPG if you're interested. And for the record, we don't get anything for sending folks to the site. We offer them as a suggestion for a start point for PDFs as a quasi-public service announcement. In June of 2007, a new company, Diceless by Design, was created by Edwin Voskamp and Eric Todd. Their stated goal was to bring Amber Diceless back into print, but they weren't the ones to do it. Instead, they licensed the product to Wright Publishing in May of 2010, and they announced their intentions to pair the rules system with a new setting. With that in mind, they tapped Jason Dural, who was a veteran of both the industry as a whole and the Diceless system itself. Credited as the sole writer, he wrote that new book, titled Lords of Gossamer and Shadow Diceless. Wright Publishing chose to fund the game with a Kickstarter in May of 2013. The campaign was successfully completed in September of 2013, and the game itself was released publicly in a full color print copy as well as PDF in November of 2013. Diceless by Design also provided additional supplements and support for the new game. Now as we record this show, this version of the game is also out of print, but the PDFs are still available, if of course you're interested. However, I feel the obligation to remind you that while the system is the same, the setting is way different from the original books. So buy it if you want, but don't expect it to be Amber Diceless 2nd Edition. So to this point in the show, we've covered the basics of the setting, thanks to our look at the novels the game is based on, and the history of the publication of the game itself. Now it's time to do that thing I love to do most when we deep dive games. Pop the hood and check out the system that makes it run. Let's start by looking at the attributes of Amber Diceless, since attributes tend to form the base that characters are built on, regardless of the system. In Amber Dice List, there are four attributes, Psyche, Strength, Endurance, and Warfare. Psyche is used for feats of willpower or magic. Strength is used for feats of strength or unarmed combat. Endurance covers, yeah, you guessed it, feats of endurance. Warfare is used for armed combat, whether it's a duel or a full-on commanding of armies. Insofar as ratings, attributes run from minus 25, which is a normal human, to minus 10, which would be someone from the Courts of Chaos, to zero, which is an inhabitant of amber. Scores can continue to climb, but there's no limit to how high they can go. Once you get above zero though, scores are ranked, with the highest score being ranked first, next highest second, and so on. Let me give you an example of how that works. The character with first rank in an attribute is considered to be superior in that attribute, which means they're better than the character with the second rank, regardless of how close those scores happen to be. Looking at the minutiae of it, the character with the higher rank will always win any sort of contest based on that particular attribute. Now, we know what the attributes are, but we haven't yet discussed how you put points into them. Look, this is a completely different way to buy ability scores from anything we've covered before, I can assure you. Ability scores are purchased during character creation by means of an auction. So here's how that works. Each player gets 100 character points and they bid on each attribute in turn. The person who bids the most for an attribute is ranked first and therefore superior to all other characters in that attribute. Now, regardless of how much you bid, once the auction for a particular attribute is finished, every bid removes points from your pool. So if you bid 50 points for an attribute and I bid 49... You get the first rank and I get the second, but we both lose the points, therefore lowering the number of points in our respective pools. Keeping that in mind, you'll wanna balance your bids when bidding on each attribute. Granted, you're probably not gonna be able to get first rank in all of them, but you might just be able to get second in most, if not all, if you really play your point by right. Now the idea behind the Point Auction is to bring a bit of the history of the descendants of Oberon from the books into focus. After all, they've been competing for power for years, so the competition for power in character building means the players are in competition before the actual game even begins. As a GM, I'd recommend reining it in a bit, because while the game does foster competition, you don't want things getting out of hand before you even get a chance to run the first scenario of your campaign. Just a little something to keep in mind. Now let's take a moment, if we could, to dig a little deeper into Psyche. Characters with a high Psyche are presented as having strong telepathic abilities, some of that even being the power to hypnotize and or mentally dominate other characters. That would be especially true of those first rank Psyche characters, since they can mentally dominate all of those lower than them pretty much at will. Now, this turns out to be a different presentation than in the books, as those battles are only presented when it's dramatically necessary to have a mind-to-mind battle. There are a few of those in the series, by the way, but it's safe to say that during the game, there will be a whole lot more. No need to dive deeper into the other three attributes, as they're pretty much the same as they're presented in the books. Besides, I think they're all pretty much self-explanatory. So let's move on and look at powers. The powers in the game are based directly off the powers presented in the Chronicles of Amber. The first one is Pattern. Basically, any character who has walked the pattern can walk in shadow to any possible universe, and while they're there, they can manipulate probability, which is a pretty neat trick if you ask me. Next up is Logris. If you've mastered the Logris, you can send out what are known as Logris tendrils and pull yourself or objects through shadow. Again, that's a pretty neat trick, and a pretty useful one as well. Shapeshifting is another power that can be utilized. Pretty self-explanatory. I mean, you can literally alter your physical form. The difference between this form of shapeshifting and forms in other games is that you can also alter your abilities while you do this. All right, let's talk about Trump, and I mean lowercase t, Trump. Trump artists can create Trumps, which are a type of tarot card which allows for mental communication and travel. Magic is the last power on the list. There are three types of magic in the game, power words, which have small but quick effects, sorcery, which are pre-prepared spells, much like in other game systems, and conjuration, which is the creation of small objects. It should be noted here that the first four powers I listed are available in an advanced form, which makes them more powerful and or potent. Now, powers are a pretty big deal in the game, since they allow characters the opportunity to get pretty much any object they want. But what if you don't have those powers? Or what if you want something with a specific virtue or something? The rules actually provide for this. A player can choose to spend character points to get these types of objects, like an object that's unbreakable or something that has a mind of its own. These objects become a part of the character's legend and cannot be destroyed. So. What happens if you don't spend all your character points in the attribute auction? I mean, it's possible that might happen. They become what are known as good stuff. Good stuff in the game is considered to be a form of good luck, which plays out as the character having positive relationships with a number of NPCs or getting helpful reactions when they need them. Of course, there's a flip side to that coin, and it's bad stuff. Bad stuff is possible because players are allowed to overspend on their character points to a reasonable amount, which is determined in advance by the GM. As you'd guess, bad luck means that you're going to be looked at in a negative light, and if you really need to be lucky, you're probably not going to be. So, with Amber Diceless being a diceless system, how do we resolve tasks? I mentioned this when we were talking about attributes a moment ago, but it should be stated again. In any given fair conflict between two characters, the character with the higher score in the relevant attribute will eventually win. Now There are two key words there, fair and eventually. Keep in mind that when the character attributes are close in score, there are ways to alter the possible outcomes, and I'll get to that in a minute. If there's a wide divide, the conflict's gonna end pretty quickly, because the higher score will win the day. So if the scores are close, there's an easy way for the character with a lower score to find a way to win, and that's change the relevant attribute being used. I mean, if you're having a fist fight where strength would be used, pull a weapon that changes the attribute to warfare. Or concentrate on full defense, which changes it to endurance. Or try using a mind power, changing the attribute to psyche. Basically, if the scores are close and you're the lower score, change the conflict to one that gives you the advantage, especially if the scores are then far enough apart to bring the conflict to a quick close. There's one more system note to mention, and it's what's called the Golden Rule. It states specifically that the GM is encouraged to change the rules however they see fit, up to and including adding or removing powers or attributes. So make sure you bring your GM's favorite snacks when you're playing the game. Hint hint, wink wink, nudge nudge, Bob's your uncle. With the system function covered, let's drop in some reviews. In the June 1992 issue of Dragon Magazine, we got two reviews for the game. Lester Smith said the following, quote, GMs have to spend quite a bit of time and creative effort coming up with wide-reaching plots for their players to work through. Canned linear adventures just won't serve, end quote. He finished by saying, quote, As impressed as I am with this game, do I think it's the end-all of role-playing games or that diceless systems are the wave of the future? I'll give a firm no on both counts. However, I certainly do think that the Amber diceless role-playing game is destined for great popularity and a niche among the most respected of role-playing game designs. End quote. Alan Varney said this in his review: quote, "The intensity of the Amber game indicates that Wuchik is onto something." When success in every action depends on the role, R-O-L-E, and not the role, R-O-L-L, players develop a sense of both control and urgency, along with creativity that borders on mania. End quote. And because I like to use more than just one source for reviews, here's one more. Lloyd Blankenship reviewed the game for Pyramid No. 2 in 1993. He said, quote, Amber is a valuable resource to a GM, even if he isn't running an Amber game. For gamers who have an aspiring actor or actress lurking within their breast, or for someone running a campaign via electronic mail or message base, Amber should be given serious consideration, end quote. I've got one final note on the Amber diceless role-playing game. Even though the original version has been out of print for 20 years, there's still a huge interest in it. There are a number of conventions that are devoted to the game, called Ambercons. They take place yearly in Massachusetts, Michigan, Portland, Oregon, Belfast in Northern Ireland, and Modena, Italy. So if you're anywhere near those areas and are interested in seeing how the game works for yourself, find out when the convention takes place and check it out. And with that, we've come to the end of today's show. So, as we finish today's show, we've got two more episodes left for 2022. Now, I'm going to do something a little bit different for those shows as I move away from my typical heavy research for a subject and instead get into two areas I've wanted to cover in long form for a while. I call them Player 101 and GM 101. I know I've hit on these topics briefly in the past, but I've never really broken them down in the longer form style we do on this show. We're going to do them in order, so next week we cover Player 101, and we'll close out the year with GM101. I've already started working both of these episodes up, and I know that for some of you there will be some thoughts and ideas you might not have considered. For the rest of you, it'll give you the opportunity to tweet me and remind me of things that I missed. Either way, we're going to have some fun. Speaking of fun, we're now three episodes into the second season of Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. This season, we're building for the Fallout role-playing game, and this week's episode covers setting building. So if you're looking for inspiration for your Fallout game, check out the show. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs, Role playing history is a production of bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash bad prod, Twitter at badgmp. YouTube bad GM Productions, Tumblr, Bad GM Productions. You can email us at badgmproductions at gmail.com and online the website's badgmproductions.net. Next week, class is in session as we cover the concepts of player 101. What might we hit on in that show? You're going to have to check us out next week to find out. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis and your Role Playing History.